0: A lot of practices or indigenous practices, which you know, peoples who worked kind of as guardianships of the land and their knowledge um, is super important and is going to become even more important as we kind of go forward. But how do we ensure that that, that knowledge isn't sort of taken away and taken away and then a monetized, but also taken away and, um, and not given credit? Because, of course, all these. Um, ideas are very fundamental to, to a culture's identity.
1: Hi, this is the Ignorances Guide to Surviving Humanity. I'm Iliana Chan with my co-host Wei Chan. And we're here with a very special guest, uh, Dr. Anna Sulan-Masing. Hey. So, um, uh, how should I call you, <laughs> Dr. Anna, so, you know. Um, I'll call you Anna, is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that's great, right, that's great. Right. All right, um, so Anna um, has, is, it seems to be like a renaissance woman of many hats. Um, you're a writer, a poet, um, an editor. You've written two plays, or maybe more, um, two that I know of, that I'm very interested in. Um, you did your PhD on identity, and how identity, and please, correct me, um, but my understanding is how identity changes according to environment, with an emphasis on Iban, um, the people who uh, who are um, an indigenous peoples of Sarawak, where um, my dad is from and my parents live and ways dad is from. And hey. apparently my great-grandmother is of Iban culture or descent, it's very unclear which. <laughs> but she definitely had the culture part of being Yvonne. So that's, um, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Um, anything else you want to add to this introduction? That was terribly um, long and rambly.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so yeah, my PhD is, is looking at how identity changes when space and location changes. So it's looking at migration um, oh. and the stories we tell when we, when we, when we migrate and move through space. Um, so yeah, so that's the focus. It's the kind of like changing space. Um, and how that affects the way we yeah, communicate and talk and frame our identities, because our identities are, um, you know, shaped by the stories we tell and we, we we tell stories to form identity. Yeah, and also a
1: lot of indigenous cultures of Sarawak and maybe indigenous cultures in general have oral history traditions. Um,
0: um, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but it's not just, um, if we understand storytelling in a, in a really broad sense, um, it's, you know, we all have our own um, ways of storytelling and food is a really key um, aspect, particularly with, with migrant communities of how we carry mm-hmm. our foods, our stories, our cultural identity stories, um, which is, you know, why I do a lot around food, um, but, you yeah, know, dance, theatre, um, storytelling it's is it, storytelling and and and, and um, how we you know create cultures really or create cultural identities.
1: It's so interesting um, because yesterday I went to see your installation um, kalab Malam which mm. means nightclub um, I suppose and it um, it was a really interesting mix of of those elements that you're talking about there was food there though we couldn't eat it which seemed <laughs> very cruel, actually. <laughs> but it was, um, there was, um, it was a multimedia installation um, type thing. And I wondered if you, um, your experience of that installation, um, do you have anything that you learned on that? Or what were your thoughts about it?
0: Yeah, so it's basically, it was um, a residency um, with three so three of us so three southeast asian women um basically given a space for four days to do whatever we wanted you know like at the end of that what we could have done is just done QA and a chat or we could have just shown a video there was literally anything we could have done we had space we had time this is what it was um so what we did was we had a lot of conversations and we kept things pretty loose and shared a lot of stories um and talked obviously very naturally about um about food I mean we were all three of us we've worked with in and around food um so so very naturally talked about food um and um and of course home was the big kind of um thing that we spoke about because all of us can't go home at the moment and don't really know when we can go home and and those kind of things and missing family and 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 friends and and food which is the key thing and the idea of like living online so much um you know in the last year that's been really accentuated and this this idea that we can see a lot of things and we can almost know so much about other people through Instagram and social media or, and almost have everyday conversations with people, but not actually see them and meet them. Um, And again, like with home and, you know, family seeing pictures of food they're eating or places they're going and sort of really understanding and like having the memory attached to that sort of uh, photo and it's immediacy, but not being able to touch it, not being able to eat it, not being able to really, you know, experience home Mm -hmm. sort of distancing and sort of fragmentation of like memory and, and, and um, current life and world, so it was a kind of so that was that, that was a, like sort of almost a presentation of all our conversations that we'd had that week, and then this you know like also the fact that we then were like well well part of this experience is also sitting down and eating together, and some of the things we wanted to film about eating and this you know having something on film puts a you know a barrier between between us and the audience, but then of course we just sat and actually had dinner together and just ordered Deliveroo, which again is like all like picked up takeaway, which again is such a big part of like, you know, this last mm-hmm. year of delivery food. Um, so that kind of experience was also fun. And then just like we're like sitting there eating and sort of deciding to put a, put lights on and the camera on and just see what happens, you know, and that was, so it was a real, sh- just a showing of our conversations I think. Um, and yeah, the distancing, like the idea is that, were, you know, almost at the end of it, people, you know, feel hungry or want to eat or, but you can't and that like you know should like hopefully it was quite a joyful experience because it was sort of a lot of sharing and like mm-hmm. like a dinner party but without the food but that idea I think is very important um of the distancing you know when you are a migrant as well
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah absolutely
1: the community of food yeah mm-hmm. um also I really did like the karaoke
0: uh, a, I yeah, I was very was unsure job. whether anyone would actually. I didn't think anyone would do karaoke like at all. I thought everyone mm-hmm. would be like, "Ah oh, ha ha, good joke." Okay, that's me. a of people yeah. did. <laughs> Loads of people were like, "All right." Yeah, <laughs> yeah not me.
1: Um, but yeah. yes, <laughs> it was fun. <fine.
0: laughs> um, but it's a real like. Um, uh, I don't know, like Malaysian party or, or Iban party where you have the karaoke being taken very seriously in one corner where, <laughs> where the party is happening and there's music and sound everywhere else as well. Like if you look at the, like on a um, the Iban Longhouse, which then has a like a veranda up front that connects kind of all the apartments. And when you have a party, you know, your one end you'll have karaoke, in the middle somewhere we'll have someone, you know, d- doing traditional music and dance, and the other end might be like a proper kind of disco going on. You know, and you make your way around and down and there'll be food and drink in between, and then you kind of go back to the top and sort of, you know. So it felt a lot like that. It felt like a, like a, like a longhouse party so
1: for you because you're multicultural back of multicultural background um so what is home to you
0: what do you consider home um i, I mean i guess it's that, that's sort of a complicated question in some <laughs> ways and also in other ways it's it's not i mean i mm-hmm. just little homes you know like um yeah. and and the idea of sort of home is 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 a you know, like it turns out you look at home, like home and sort of nostalgia and a sense of comfort or things like that, then home is a, a concept of longing. So it's wherever you're sort of not, um, if you're someone like kind of on the move or, or, or thinking along those lines. But then there's also, you know, home is, is exactly where you are and this idea of kind of um, the agency and, and the movement and being still and kind of like a stillness and, 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 and kind of constantly, you know, on the move. Um, London's the place I've lived the most of my life. So I would say mm-hmm. that without a, without a doubt that I'm a Londoner and that would probably be my sort of core, core identity. Um, and, and that being said, um, I think London as, as an identity, I think London is one of um, stable fluctuation and um, people from everywhere.
1: And also you're writing a book called Sourced, right? Which is
0: no. a book? <laughs> oh no! Oh my gosh! <laughs> what? No, I have a project called Sourced. Um, oh, I thought it was a book, but it's it's actually a research project. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it came out of the idea of wanting to write a book, um, and and something that I am pursuing uh, anyway, and and sort of formulating. Um, but and hopefully it'll come become a book. Um, And, but yeah, it came out of the idea of this is what I wanted to pursue. Um, These topics of looking at how ingredients are sourced and how those kind of identities of ingredients travel. Um, Mm -hmm. So like looking at what my PhD was, but like through sort of very specifically food and, and, um, ingredients and because that way we can kind of tap into the history of things. But as, uh, as we we're uh, creating it, it was something very much me and Chloe, who I, I do sourced with, wanted to explore together and I quite like, actually last night was a very kind of um, good idea of, of sort of the idea of how we wanted to explore some of these really big topics through kind of interaction, speaking and presenting and, and, and events. But of course, that was like a ruminating idea before pandemic and then, you know, events. Right fast <laughs> um, very quickly um, but then when we really rethought about it and sort of the kind of like big idea of what we wanted to do with this is that it, it, it was a research project and if we're really going to to understand this topic in a really big way it actually needed to have multiple voices and the only way to do that is to sort of commission people to do research and and and, and whatnot so actually um, Chloe and I do very little writing for source we commission. A lot of people um, to do the research and writing and, um, but for us, what it means is that we have to do a lot of background research, we have to investigate kind of what sort of sort of broader topics are so that we know how to pitch, we know how to edit, we can, you know, like people write, when you're an editor, people write stuff that you have no experience about, but you have to kind of understand the landscape or like, understand the kind of um, strength that you want from that article or those kind of topics. Um, so yeah, so it's, so it's, it's it's when we really believe in the idea of, um, um, that academia is, it should be accessible, um, and that we learn in different ways. So we have, um, the idea of like academic writing should sit beside, um, video and film and, 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 um, we have a comic strip. And we have published, in, you know, different publishing in different languages. So we do have a Malay um, piece in written Malay. So, for example, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and this So, is funny.
1: so what sort of things do you commission? Do you choose to commission? Have you chosen to commission? We
0: work on a like um, we concentrating an ingredient a season. Uh, we try to do four seasons this year, which was actually too much. I think we are going to do just about four seasons, but it's like. It's actually too much research. The next year will just be three seasons. Um, so at the mm-hmm. moment we're in cinnamon. Um, so yeah, so so quite a lot of stuff that we commissioned and people pitch in some story ideas. Um, but la- last season was water. And actually part of water we looked at um, migration because the idea of like traveling overseas is uh, a water. Well, yeah. And so how
1: much of, uh, how much of that uh, project is also sort of like the po- politics of... I guess water or when, when you yeah. said water, I thought of like drought and um, refugees, etc.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we did talk about water rights a little bit. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Definitely. I mean, I mean, I would say that it's quite but political is a different difficult one, because once you say things are political, it becomes sort of polarizing or the idea mm-hmm. of um, um, taking a side or like a political party as opposed to policy. Um, so I would say that, that definitely it's political in the sense that what we want to do is, is look at um, structures and systems, and 100% wanting to look at systems, and I guess systems have, um, uh, you know, politics and policy involved in it. Um, yeah, so I would say that's the most important thing for us is to, uh, to re-look at systems, Re- rethink them, rebuild them, burn the whole fucking house down, start again. So mm-hmm. how would you rebuild the system surrounding water? Surrounding water, I mean, if, in, in the sense that, like, so if you think about, um, I mean, America's probably a really good example of, of how with water, um, colonial structures and systems uh, have been put in place that take away rights from Indigenous people mm-hmm. or, for, or from people in general. Uh, I don't know, like, i don't know the full details but you know there are there are so much there are stories kept, you know um, in the us about like land that 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 come with land rights and water pipes and and and, and that kind of stuff that um um is a, a looking at the idea of yeah of of land rights really or like that that things belong to someone which is an absolutely you know which is a colonial which is a colonial concept so i think that um rebuilding the system would be not to have a capitalist colonial system. That is really
1: fascinating, I think, when it comes to the US, because you're right, there's the indigenous rights issue, but then there's also the issue that, I think over 40 states don't have safe drinking, safe water, like there's lead in their pipes, And that, again, is to do with capitalism and corruption within the system.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So the system isn't working, or rather, the system is working exactly as it was meant to work, which is to create inequality. And um, yeah. So we, either way you look at it, you know, that's not the system I want to be working.
1: <laughs> yeah. So was there anything that you learned from last season about water specifically um, that helped yeah. you decide what system we should be trying to invest in?
0: Uh, but that's the thing. There isn't a system. Um, and and there is no you know and then we, we need to move away from binary ideas of the the, the fits or the solution or the um and rather kind of like I don't know deinvest or and rethink how you know people play a part in these 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 systems and situations I guess um, the biggest thing that I learned was about bogs and how bogs are the kind of how they are part of the ecosystem and. Um, Uh, balance out water and and carbon dioxide and and yeah bogs are our our most precious and ancient uh, natural systems that we need to protect and are not being protected so that would be one one start don't buy um compost that has peat in it and actively, actively protest against and encourage for for bogs um to be to be left and you know so waterlands and stuff which we have globally right Vlogs, we have them all over the place oh
2: I was asking Anna about um like what she misses about Sarawak and um things like that so um, I mean
0: the food for sure Mm um yeah breakfast you know breakfast (laughs) Mm um yeah I just it's the smells and the heat, and I hate the heat.
2: <laughs> you don't like the heat? I don't know. I like it. It depends. The forest is great.
0: Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. That's
2: like, I feel like um, whenever I get too hot in Malaysia, I just think, well, it didn't it used to be kind of all these flat, grassy places. It used to be just full of trees. And mm-hmm. when you go, you know, into the forest, you just feel so comfortable. It's just exactly the right temperature. And you can really imagine how people just live without fans and air cons, because it's totally like Different. really comfortable, yeah. yeah.
1: Actually, yeah, when my parents live, they cl- live close to a secondary jungle mm. and it is actually very comfortable. Um, yeah it's when I get out of the airport that I'm like oh my
0: god what's going on yeah I love I love that though because it's like okay. a um it's like a physical barrier you know and that's like a, a notification your body is like yes okay I'm here I need to you know adjust a physical kind of encompassing yeah thing it really
2: is the the sliding door and then it (laughs) opens out and then you walk through and it's like you hit this wall of heat and it's amazing and then and then the smell comes in as well and you're just like oh yeah i remember this
0: yeah 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 exactly yeah Mm -hmm. yeah but i've got to say the food is the thing i miss the most i can't like yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) there is nothing and like you know malaysian food here is pretty good and it's, it's like i think we're lucky we've got a few plates a few places to eat but it's just it's not obviously it's not the same um yeah,
1: yeah so. i haven't even found any
0: yet i am
1: um, yeah i haven't even found any places yet. malaysian yeah. food but yeah but it's not the same because you have like um you'll have like a in malaysia a hawker stall that's mm-hmm. been making one dish for like generations yeah, <laughs> you yeah. can't really replicate that sort of thing no and the ingredients cute. as well
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's also just like, you know, this, you know, eating Laksa at 8am in the morning when you know it's about to get really hot, but it feels a little bit cool and you're, you know, you're sweating, eating it, but it's still Mm -hmm. kind of like a morning breeze and yeah, like that's, that is just the best.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's the whole experience, isn't it? And the food is like perfectly adapted to make you feel a certain way in those conditions. So yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and also like in Malaysia, I mean, I, I obviously only go back when I'm either doing research or um, or it's like a holiday, and so it's kind of not real life for me. So which is probably mm. sounds but but and and with that, has like a. a a Malaysia has a slower pace anyway, or Surah mm-hmm. has a slower pace anyway. And then adding into the reasons why I'm there that need to be kind of like honed down or very specific, you know. Um, it's not like me tr- trying to juggle a bunch of stuff, which is what reality is, you know, every day is. So then, so then your whole body kind of goes into a like, okay, you know, relax and mm. um, yeah, it's good.
2: It is slower. I remember my dad was saying that. I don't know. I'm not. I can't remember which uncle it was, so I don't get to incriminate him, but um, he said he goes into the office at like 9.30, (laughs) then at maybe 11, he goes to the coffee shop um, for some breakfast or something like that. Then he comes back and then like an hour or two later, he'll go to the coffee shop again for lunch. (laughs) And and I think it was like all about just going between the office and the coffee shop. And I wonder, how much work he actually gets done or maybe he's very efficient maybe he works very intensely who knows Um, but
0: that's but that's the thing like maybe yeah we work with (laughs) we have have this idea of work being a you know having to slog at it but like you have one clear agenda and you do it spend all the other time in the coffee shop
2: Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) they've got the secret they definitely They
1: know things. I mean, it's hard to do that during lockdown. It's the only thing, but
0: yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, yeah, it's. I mean, lockdown in this year has totally changed routines, or or or, yeah, and what we think of as being normal was normal, or and trying to regain some kind of sense of, um, I don't know, uh, familiarity with your routines. I guess you know, it's it's a tough Mm -hmm. one. Yeah,
2: for sure. You talk about issues like migration and um, and water and things like that. And, and also the relationship we have, uh, well, the so-called First World has with the Global South um, and countries in the Global South. Do you feel like um, there is an interconnectedness between, when we use the term Global South, do you feel like there is an interconnectedness between the situations of, Various countries in um, Asia and say South America or Africa.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so the, the, co- the concept of the global south and global north is also mm-hmm. if we, we should look at it in, in terms of um, global south spaces can exist in the in the location of the global north as mm-hmm. well as you know global north spaces can exist in the sort of southern hemisphere. And, um, so to speak, you know, that, that kind of hemisphere, southern hemisphere, correct, but that hemisphere of the global south, um, because that is, that's looking at it in terms of, um, like positions of power and it's very much based on a post-colonial just spaces and states. And so understanding, um, how, also understanding how those those spaces in the global South have been framed or like um, have been framed for how they work and how they are good mm. for the
2: mm-hmm. global north
0: right? like what makes them a good state? what makes yes
2: them oh my god yeah. and, and mm-hmm. like
0: interesting for a global perspective mm-hmm. isn't actually what might be inherently you know something that they value or peoples within that that state might value, right? but mm-hmm. we as the sort of global economy. And the economy is what dictates kind of like national identities mm-hmm. those those states get get um positioned as as, as why they're good as is because of the way that they get to um why they, they, the goodness for the for the global north so yeah there is absolutely you know um connectivity, um and i think food pathways is a really good way of looking at that um this is something that dr uh uh, Jessica Harris, Jessica B. Harris talks about a lot. Um, and her book, High and the Hog, and also the Netflix show, High and the Hog, I would say, is is a really great reference point to look at the idea of how, you know, food pathways are ways that we can track mm-hmm. and look at the um, sort of um, way the global south as kind of a whole. And like looking at a collective is not making something. Um, um, What's the word I yeah. yeah yeah yeah. but it's looking at the concepts and the collectiveness of that yeah um and so tracking those sort of pathways we get to see where that 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 knowledge and traveling of information has happened and i think that's also another way of looking at and and seeing agency and power and knowledge mm-hmm. uh, uh, be transferred and probably was never um valued or has not been valued because it doesn't sort of it's not a. Um, it doesn't produce kind of economy, but then it obviously it did produce economy. It created the rice um, fields in the US, and it created mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But like the sort of understanding, kind of like knowledge that was take that was that was um, brought by individuals and communities, um, and sort of valuing that kind of knowledge as opposed to valuing the product of the knowledge. Does that make sense? It was slightly rambling.
2: Um-
0: <laughs> I'm
2: trying, still trying. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm oh, so, um, sorry, just for, uh, to, to recap your, the, uh, the Netflix show you were saying, talking about with called
0: High on the Hog,
2: High on the Hog, yes, okay, yeah, 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 I did see that one, yeah, and that's kind of, I saw it, I started it, um, I didn't know it was going to be that deep, I, I thought it was just going to be another food show, so actually it's, um, It's kind of more about how how food um summarize it, but uh, how the flow of food and flow of knowledge kind of um, I guess tells the story about inequality. Would
0: that be fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean Mm -hmm. I think obviously (laughs) it looks very much at the 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 the, the black American story, Mm -hmm. which is obviously incredibly important, um, and Mm -hmm. places value on that that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, without, without it. Yeah. I mean, everyone I'm sure has their own opinion of it, but, you know, for me, it was, it was a really great way of placing, um, uh, value on, 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 on a collective people's knowledge, um, without, without, um, and, and addressing how that knowledge, um, made very, made, you know, white people very rich. <laughs>
2: uh, okay. Yeah. So. It's that oh, really? kind of, kind of like a little bit more of a, um, like a very tangible example of cultural appropriation, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, 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 and and obviously it 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 it, it talks about um, enslavement and and mm. it talks about in a very by by throwing these through these food pathways. It's, mm-hmm. It really opens up the um, the conversation and and addresses it. I think in a really. Um, important way and also because it is is you know um black um uh food creators and and Mm -hmm. you know um by Stephen Satterfield who is incredible in all ways shapes and forms so Mm -hmm. amazing it's really interesting to
1: me like you're talking about this and I don't know if I completely grasped what you were saying this is probably completely out of left field then but it made me think of um just how so many, there's been so many instances of, like say, American companies patenting, patenting, um, like rice or the, you know, or whatever it is, and then like turning around to Thailand and (laughs) trying to make them pay for the use of, I guess, the specific rice that they've patented or patented, and so this idea, of, I guess, uh, that's the thing about food and rice. It's, it's something like we think of, you know, just as like a capitalistic consumer thing, but then who owns that? Who gets to own that? And also um, it, this idea of the patent and the intellectual IP, the intellectual property of food, um, is just really fascinating to me. Um, I'm thinking of also this um, Chinese, invent the inventor of the hybrid rice i think that was like famine resistance mm-hmm. um, or whatever and i like he's like a hero in china because mm-hmm. he um shared this technology for free um to help eradicate poverty across the world but it's just a very different philosophy from what we would get from the west which is that's our ip we get to keep it um So yeah, I think that's like a very fascinating idea because even with um, something simple like rice, it brings up so much, like you're saying with the pathways.
0: Mm. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's. I think that's a really huge question. And one of the things that I think is really um, an important one to be asking going forward as well, because as we sort of talk about climate change and and how we're going to kind of solve the problems of the world, um, a lot of practices or indigenous practices, which, you know, peoples who worked kind of as guardianships of the land and their knowledge, um, is super important and is going to become even more important as we kind of go forward. But how do we ensure that that, that knowledge isn't sort of taken away and taken away and then a monetized, but also taken away and, um, and not given credit because of course all these, um, ideas are very fundamental to to a culture's identity um, and how they live and to sort of just take that away and, you know, like, patent it or do whatever, you know, and say, I've got the answer, this is it, listen to me and become the expert and, you know, it's very... Um, uh I think is is gonna happen <laughs> and yeah. And, so and, and maybe happen.
2: even prevent the original culture from from, yeah. from actually actually utilizing it using and charging it them for themselves, it. themselves or yeah, charging them for it, or, or preventing them, them it. from yeah. from making money out of it globally, you know, mm-hmm. all the benefits that could go to that original culture just um
0: exactly. Completely,
2: mm. yeah.
1: And that's really the real issue with cultural appropriation. Like we've gotten to a point in culture where we've just sort of de-sanit- in desanitized, we've just sort of like rendered cultural appropriation to what sort of outfit you wear versus like this very serious theft, um, you know, which is real, really the, I think the main issue with cultural appropriation.
2: And can yeah. just impoverish, you know, communities.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely um so for for this season you're working on cinnamon um yes. and what uh, what stories or what things have you learned about cinnamon
0: there are over 250 types of cinnamon
1: no oh whoa yeah, i thought there were like i think i know three <laughs>
2: I didn't I, I I didn't know that there was more than one, to be honest. There are three types of cinnamon. No or 250.
1: The 250.
2: What were the three that you knew?
1: <laughs> I think this is just bullshit, but I think it was like uh to do with like there's Indian cinnamon.
2: <laughs> so oh maybe my I God. just know
1: cinnamon. <laughs> no, that God.
2: doesn't sound right. I'm sorry. Well Indian oh. cinnamon, Chinese cinnamon, and Moroccan cinnamon. I
0: didn't even know. I mean Chinese to be honest, cinnamon. That's pretty much it. Yeah, that's all almost- <laughs> So there's like Ceylon cinnamon, which is considered the true cinnamon, which was named after the colonial name of um, Sri Lanka. Um, mm. So the, the cinnamon that's grown in Sri Lanka, which is considered mm. by most people kind of true cinnamon and sort of a lot softer and sort of higher quality. Um, mm. That's, yeah. And then there's um, uh, cassia, cassia, which is known as Chinese cinnamon, but is actually used a lot in India. Mm. So a lot of the Indian cooking it uses cassia. Um, so those are the two that most people know. Um, and so I kind of see those two as like, um, fraternal twins that sort of go through life together and people mix them up and, but they're not identical, but they're kind of like, yeah. occupy the same space Um, and I think predominantly those are the two that throughout history has been have been the sort of predominant um, ones but yeah there are there are lots of different types of cinnamon Um, and the the trees are are used in different ways depending on what type of cinnamon you have and um, yeah so but but I didn't know how many there were I kind of had an idea but I had no idea I honestly thought there were basically two and then variants on that too but um, no are they like do they taste very different? I don't know. I mean, the thing is, is like, as I said, like they use, uh, different cultures use the, cause um, it's from the laurel tree. So uh, family um, use it differently. So like the Taiwanese cinnamon from my understanding is predominantly the leaves are predominantly used as opposed to the bark. Wow. Um, what do you yeah. do with
2: leaf cinnamon? What do you do with cinnamon leaves?
0: I mean, lot, lots of different things. I mean, you can sort of treat it like a bay, like a bay leaf. Um, and kind yeah, I'm of imagining that. Like some people there. actually use some cinnamon and call it like Indian bay leaves, and it's actually cinnamon. Oh.
1: Cinnamon.
2: Uh,
0: okay. Yeah, that's, I'm, now I'm just get, getting really hungry from this conversation. I know. <laughs> actually, I you... have an article about um someone growing Taiwanese cinnamon, which is a really lovely little story. Um, so, read oh. that. it's very short. It's very sweet. Um, Yeah, so that's a good little inside into Taiwanese cinnamon.
2: Hmm. Um, did you learn anything apart from sort of the different, how much, how many different varieties of cinnamon there are? Did you sort of learn any interesting stories from from your study of cinnamon?
0: Um, so cinnamon has like a really, it's a, it's a very ancient spice, I would say. Um, so it's got lots of really good antique stories from antiquity, you know, people trying to, where cinnamon was from was the biggest, story that everyone wanted to uncover Mm. um which the cinnamon traders uh made up stories so that no one could find it one of them being Uh that that, like there were cinnamon birds that created cinnamon (laughs) and cinnamon
2: (laughs) that's cool i mean i kind of like that so (laughs) cinnamon birds.
0: yeah but yeah cinnamon like the ancient egypt's used cinnamon from bombing um Mm. the romans burnt it um um, sort of at funerals and things like that. So yeah, I mean, like yeah, it's you know. like incense, incense. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's quite a different thing.
2: <laughs> oh god, right. yeah, don't edit that, that out. You got to keep that in. <laughs> um. Okay. What
1: What about medical properties of cinnamon? I'm sure there must be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of loath to go into that kind of um detail unless I know someone who who does do it you know like who that's their kind of cultural traditional thing and so I don't I haven't gone down that road and we haven't actually um commissioned anything from that the problem with that is that sometimes people get um very um mystical about like kind of like east healing properties and then we we branch Mm -hmm. into like yes like cultural appropriation and 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 stuff that doesn't get spoken about you know and and the other thing is like we only like there's only so much we can commission so if we're going to commission something that's around the medical properties it's around that kind of stuff i would like to investigate that a lot deeper and um there's only so much story so many stories we can do and have the sort of right like vigor rigor behind it you know so I haven't I haven't delved into that side of it
1: I mean all these things like water that we're talking about you mm. could be I mean that could be years long absolutely commissioning. Yeah, yeah. so it's really right <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, yeah, laughs> and yeah, same yeah. I guess same with cinnamon yeah um absolutely. Yeah. So what made you decide on cinnamon for this season too?
0: I I think cinnamon's a really fascinating um, spice because I think it's really, um, because it's had such a, long history, and yet this idea that sort of the cinnamon that people harked after and wanted so desperately only came from this one place, you know, the, the, from Sri Lanka. Um, so the idea of how did Sri Lanka become part of this, this global trade, um, did it become part of this global trade? Or was was the, the cinnamon that was in Sri Lanka that was discovered by the Portuguese, something that it wasn't known before, or you know, that that whole idea of, of you know, what is the truth of cinnamon is fascinating in itself. And I think cinnamon represents by trying to seek the sort of truth and storytelling, cinnamon kind of represents a lot of other, you know, um, issues with storytelling and history. Um, but also because of it's kind of like, for me, it seems to be the, the one spice or the one of the one of, you know, a key spice that um, has such wild stories attached to it. So why do we, why do we create all these wild stories about cinnamon, you know, Um, and, and why is it captured people's imagination? And if you start talking about cinnamon to lots of people, everyone has their own cinnamon story that's related to their history, um, sort of really wherever you are. And, you know, in the world, I mean, well, not everywhere, but you know, there are there are cinnamon has traveled far and wide, and is sort of embedded itself into a lot of cultures, um, which I think is really fascinating.
2: Did yeah. any one story um, really stick in your mind or stand out for you?
0: Uh, yeah, this is this is um, woman whose uh, like four year old daughter is a bit of a wild wild card when it comes to what she wants to eat and um so she was coming up with all these like ways that she wanted to have her cinnamon cooked and like she was, you know <laughs> telling her mom like oh we're gonna put this and then have cinnamon I can't, even, I can't remember the top of my head but i have got it it's in one of our sourced um newsletters actually it's really funny and so she was like we're gonna have this and this but this and we're gonna put cinnamon in it she's like that doesn't that's not sound right not like,
2: just do ever do that to everything
0: yeah but no she had yeah her daughter came up with just like these great recipes with like wild kind of recipes with cinnamon and um so that that's cool I like that idea and then that's like you know creating new stories which is a really nice thing
1: yeah it's true I can think of like every single cuisine that I can think of has some sort of cin- like mm-hmm. east or west or yeah. you know I can think of has cinnamon
0: yeah
1: and I'm just super hungry again <laughs> mm-hmm. I know Thinking all of the food <laughs> could um So does this mean that you're like an amazing cook yourself?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you just know about Um, my. But like, yeah, I don't like. I'm a, you know, I'm a nerd. I'm an academic. I like the 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 structures and the investigation of the food. Um, I can cook. I can cook fine, but I would prefer to be reading than cooking. Um, Cooking takes time and energy and labor, and I. yeah, the people are better and have more patience. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I like, I like theory, I like that kind of investigation, I guess. Um, and yeah, I mean, I can cook. I understand the concepts of flavors, but I get distracted and burn my onions all the time. <laughs>
2: did I, um, on a slightly different topic, did I see some of your work in uh, a batik exhibition? Yes. Yes. Uh, so that was at the, the, the dry cleaners uh, yeah, the in room. Dalston. Yeah, the steam room. That was a really beautiful exhibition. And people are talking about kind of what batik means to them. Um, is, that, is that a hobby that you have? Or is it just something that you picked up for that particular exhibition?
0: Last year, I wrote a bit a piece about um, sarongs and bat- bat- made sarongs, which are all batik um designed um and um yeah I mean my sarongs are like an everyday part of my life mm-hmm. I mean you saw all of them last night on the floor <laughs> oh okay um That's so easy. so yeah so then but then so as a bit of a joke I mean I sent it I don't know if you saw the picture of my dogs when my dog and my cat on the batik exhibition no oh. no <laughs> So that was the story. Well, I submitted a story about myself, but they also submitted um, the story of my the relationship my dog and my cat have with sarongs, so. <laughs>
2: um, I mean, we're, like my family is Chinese from Sarong, but um, I think we still use sarongs a lot. So my dad actually, not recently so much, but definitely for a very long time, uh, would just wear a sarong around the house. And you have the, it's, it's interesting because in Malaysia, you have the different style of prints for men and women. So a man would have like a a more uh, linear pattern on the sarong and a woman would have more of a floral pattern. And um, and it's funny when you see um, kind of people around England not knowing that and, and just wearing a sarong of, for the, not that it's that important anymore, but wrong gender, I guess. Um, and then you have uh, you use a sarong to, I guess, um, cradle a baby. Um, so my cousin would always. Um, I mean, she's probably like 30 now, but uh, when when she was a ba- when she was a baby, I would see her kind of in a kind of a sling um, like held a up hammer. by yeah hammock <laughs> um, held up by like a a bungee cord, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then you rock okay. the baby by like pulling the pulling the thing and yeah. it just looks so relaxing so uh yeah and of course I've seen my grandma and my granddad in, in sarongs all day in the kampong so um
0: but sarongs are like yeah. um used for everything they're kind of like yeah automatic picnic blankets when you're out like you know like they're they're I don't know I just love them because they're so versatile and you can and then once they go through the sort of use of wearing and then when they kind of the red bear, then you can use them for like, as the cleaning cloth, as they break down. You know, like the life of a sarong is 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 long and varies.
2: Oh, wow. Okay, I never thought of that. So yeah, because that was the next thing I was going to ask, is if, if you use it for so many things, then um, why do they put such nice patterns on them if you're just going to, you know, do that with them? But um, I guess they start, you, you wear a new sarong for, when when you want to be smart or something like that, yeah. and then obviously when it's not new anymore, then you use it to swaddle the
1: baby or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. The other thing that you do have, I mean, you have so many projects, really. But is the cheese mag, which is very different from yeah what we were just talking about. But how did that come about? Because it's a really beautiful magazine.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. It came about because um, on lockdown, um, my boyfriend was trying to find a cheese magazine to subscribe to and he couldn't find one. So <laughs> that's why it exists. Um, very drunkenly decided that that's, that's what we're gonna do. So we did that. Um, but also it, it, it isn't actually at all different from everything I do when you really look at it. Mm. Um, it's taking an ingredient or an idea mm. and looking at its place in culture and community and how people relate to it. Um, so it's about place and people. And, th- and we just happen to talk about people and location through cheese. And cheese is a really great example because it's a real um, art- artisanal uh, practice now in a lot of places, obviously. Um, but not only that, like if you look at the history of cheese, you know, it, it was something that was created, um, A, it probably was created accidentally, um, but also <laughs> it's something that was used for the leftovers, right? Like what do you do with the leftover milk? How do you keep the milk? How do you age so you have this protein going forward? You know, it's a real, um, um, and so then different cultures and communities, um, yeah, played around and created different cheeses and that represents the terroir and the the environment that they're living in, um, because cheese gets created when done by hand and artisanal, which is how you would do an artisanal cheese. The literal hand that makes it is 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 putting in the flavor Mm. and developing it the air around the cheese which is you know representative of the soil the, the the grass the environment is part of the aging process the the grass that the cows eat like 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 cheese is so representative of place End of people and then again it travels you know you buy it in other places it goes to the next town it can go overseas it can you know like the idea of what cheese is and what it becomes is is really exciting I think.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, can you talk a little bit more about how it was created by accident? <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay, I just sorry. like yeah basically just um jb was trying to find a cheese magazine and there isn't one in the english language like like really i will, I want someone to come in. T- there's one called culture the magazine of culture or something like that mm-hmm. in the u.s but there isn't a magazine called cheese magazine you know no i meant mean? like how cheese might have been
1: oh, oh
0: oh oh um so not my drunken twitter conversation i think it was that was amazing and clear and uh, okay. bolt of inspiration um, so no um well, so still, that most of the world is kind of lactose intolerant to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of cheese is kind of a weird one. Um, so we couldn't eat milk. Humans, we broadly couldn't process milk. Um, so, and and except for babies, so babies were able were given milk and then when you become an adult you become lactose like, intolerant um so so in a way that was sort of something that was being wasted um and so cheese came about when um um but, like oh god i can i have no words at the moment like vessels vessels
2: yeah vessels <laughs> yes. We're, we're, I was like amphora yeah. I don't know yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay.
2: <laughs> I was gonna say I was like amphora yeah.
0: <laughs> that's a very we're, grand
2: we're, word yeah like vessels weird, yes good.
0: Yeah, weird names I'm like, yeah, yeah. just a vessel <laughs> yeah something to keep something in so once kind of like pottery and ceramics and stuff were being made and so people were like okay, putting the milk in there for whatever reason, maybe it went into cooking, but maybe it probably was just being used to, I don't know, feed the animals or or the babies or things like that. But basically being put into um, ceramics vessels and being left and then it curdling and then you can weigh and that kind of stuff. So that's probably how it would have happened. I mean, obviously obviously we we don't know, but um, that it would have came about about the same time as kind of vessels, whatever for. (laughs) were being created so that, that there was a place to hold this this liquid for this liquid to sour to um to get to a point that the 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 i don't know mechanicals of it the um the structure changes so that um more humans were able to tolerate the um yeah,
2: oh, oh yeah so wait uh, now i remember so cheese is less lactosey than milk so people with lactose intolerance can tolerate cheese more than they can milk yes yes okay
0: yeah so then with the people who were creating all the cheese you know like just with evolution became less lactose intolerant than so you know the northern parts of the world uh northern europe europe rather um yeah but I think I think still like the majority of the world I think is still actually lactose intolerant. Like I think if you were to gather all the peoples in the world, that yeah.
2: Yeah, I find it. I'm I'm surprised that I've never noticed any problems because I was reading something on just Wikipedia, which uh, I don't know who knows um, that, <laughs> the, place um, that. <laughs> the place. Yeah um and it was saying that 90 what something percent of people of uh, east asian origin are lactose intolerant mm. and i was thinking i've actually never noticed anything but i've never really tried to drink a big pint of milk i don't know that's um yeah. but yeah but intolerance,
0: is, mm. intolerance is a spectrum right mm. and if you don't eat it the more mm. intolerant you become so if you have it little bits every day you you know you sort of body can handle it a bit um but if you there's a really interesting um newsletter alicia kennedy writes an incredible newsletter every week and i haven't caught up on this one but i do know i've briefly looked through it but she's she's done one on milk
2: mm-hmm. and
0: like uh, oat milk and soy milk they're ancient like they're not some new fandangle thing, mm-hmm. you know. um so you know the, the idea of drinking milk or mm-hmm. like you know protein rich liquids mm-hmm. that are not lactose is, is a really common Common practice or
2: you know thing. I mean, obviously, I knew about soy milk, but I didn't know oat milk was.
0: Yeah, I and and like don't. I'm yeah. Read her newsletter for the details because I'm (laughs) butchering the. the, the...
2: It's fine to butcher things. It's just a podcast. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, It's
2: not (laughs) citable.
1: Yeah, I imagine if it was. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> um, you're also a poet
0: and um, a playwright as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, both of those are sort of, I guess, accidental in some ways. I mean, my background is all in theatre and dance and movement. Oh, um, wow. so that was what was sat in, so to speak. Um, and um, the poetry thing ended up being... What was the best way for me to communicate the um, the research that I was doing? Because so much of it is um, not um, ex- exploring kind of blurred lines, or like like not looking at the binary and 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 really understanding, you know, things in a much more kind of. Um, know intuitive way and I thought poetry was the best way to do that and also a lot of the um, storytelling that I was researching was Ivan poetry really um mm-hmm. so like the Pantuan which is yeah um and so that was the best way I thought for me to kind of understand and express those kind of things so yeah so um yeah that was accidental and then I've just I've published a bunch of stuff poetry poems and get asked get commissioned to do poetry um, and I still find it as the best kind of way of exploring quite complicated details um and yeah and then well as I said you know my undergraduate was in performing arts my PhD was in performing arts so I had a theater company for seven years didn't write a lot of stuff but I wrote bits and pieces um and yeah I guess the main piece was my PhD piece and a piece that I've been working on for a few years called don't sing in the kitchen but um and there's been a few other bits and pieces and I guess like stuff like last night is very much you know sits within my wheelhouse of how to tell stories and um yeah
2: what's don't sing in the kitchen about is it bad luck
0: yeah don't sing in the kitchen or you'll marry an old man (laughs) so yeah but I don't Um... know but I don't know if that's true or if it's just something that the, the performer who I work with, who I created it with, she was like, I don't know if it's true or if it's just something I got told to shut me up. So <laughs> but again, I really like. You know, like unless
2: you're unless you're good at singing and then it's fine.
0: No, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. But no, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, she she I just thought that was really funny. And um and also just the idea of kind of elders telling you like, that that's really important, like not mm-hmm. to be a young man or like to marry or that marrying is such an important thing.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, or that um, presumably this is aimed at women because a woman would be in the kitchen.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. so. <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah. So you sort of evolved from being a performer to a writer to um, telling your own story or, or was that always um, how you approached performing art?
0: Think, yeah, I think I was a performer originally, but very reali- very quickly realized in my in my degree that I didn't want to be a performer. Um, although performed all the way through um, anyway, and then got to the got to my PhD and realized I had to perform again because it was the only way I was going to do stuff, and kind of got grumpy mm. about that. But. Uh, did it anyway. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I think my I, looking back now, I think the reason I went into theater, well, I mean, I knew this at the time, but it um, was, was that I wanted to tell stories um, and this mm. felt like a really accessible way or a very important way. Um, and I didn't think I realized it at the time, Obviously, not like like why or how that was, but you know, ritual is and ceremony is a big part of um, many cultures, and that's where theater comes from. And so that idea of telling your own cultural story um, is a fair is is from is you know what theater how theater evolved. So yeah,
1: yeah, I guess that is brings us back to the oral
0: tradition. Yeah, exactly, I exactly.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, mean
2: um, yeah. with the um, Yvonne poetry. Um, you looked at, was that contemporary or was that uh, a tradition?
0: Um, it, I mean, it's a tradition for sure, yeah. um, but it is contemporary because it gets made up on the spot. So it's contemporary. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's stuff that um, people, yeah, they, they they basically rap on the spot about what's <laughs> going on in the world as they address a politician or they address, um, people within a ceremony or, or, you know, like they, yeah, it's, it's, it's super cool. I mean, I don't know how they do it and pretty intense, but yeah. Uh,
2: Is there anything that um, is coming up? You just did your amazing exhibition. Is there anything (laughs) that you're working towards or that uh, we should look out for?
0: Um, I'm, I'm hosting a, a, a summit this this week, actually, mm-hmm. um, which is I think it's it's free um, and it's really really interesting,
1: mm-hmm. and it's
0: online as well as in person, um, and it's looking at um, um, how like technology works with community and around sustainability, wow. and, and really interrogating whether technology tech is a good thing or not. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's London Tech Week this week. Mm-hmm, so, yeah, mm-hmm. so that that's that should be really cool. It's called Concave. So on Instagram, it's just Concave Summit, um, but there's some really great talks in that uh, mm-hmm. that I think, and some really important people having some really great discussions. Um, so I'm hosting that on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, so what brought you to that? um someone reached out to me the person organizing it to say you know to come on board so I've helped a little bit behind the scenes although I've been really busy so I haven't done as much as I could but sort of organized a couple of the talks and then um hosting it but yeah since so much of what I do is community-based and um about sustainability she thought it'd be interesting to sort of look at those things with the food element on board but yeah but I mean in general everyone should buy cheese magazine and everyone mm-hmm. should to to sourced because mm-hmm. That is the only way that I get to commission people. Like I don't I don't pay myself um, mm-hmm. for those projects. I make sure that I pay other people. So the more people sign up and to source, the more I can pay our contributors, which is for me the most important thing. Um, and yeah, same with Cheese Magazine.
2: Amazing. Do that. Everybody true. do that.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, issue, two, issue two of Cheese Magazine will be out in the next couple of months. Oh
2: cool. Okay link in bio
1: yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> absolutely okay
0: great
1: oh my gosh well thank you so much Anna for your time yeah welcome well
0: thanks thanks for for thinking of inviting me that was that was fun and sorry I'm a little like slow today and a bit bleary eyed but uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah, Lovely. you did not
2: seem so <laughs> <laughs> no that we didn't notice if this is bleary-eyed Anna then
1: oh my gosh what is what is bright-eyed Anna yeah. <laughs> the ignoramus's guide to surviving humanity is available as a podcast on Spotify and Amazon Music you can also like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. And if you want to help us grow, then you can become a patron on Patreon. And that's it, right? I think that's it. That's it. it. Yeah. <laughs>